Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Halfway through my junior year in college, I transferred from UT Chattanooga down to Shorter in Rome. And I remember going to orientation at UTC as a, as a college freshman, as so many of you likely experienced. Uh, there was a whole lot of information that had to be communicated, how this worked and how that worked and how to pay your fines and how to avoid having fines and all those sort of things that they had to communicate. And, you know, I don't know that I remember anything that they shared because none of it was just life-altering there on that particular day. In spite of the fact that I had five semesters of college under my belt when I went to Shorter, guess what happened when I showed up at Shorter College? I had to sit through an orientation. I had to be reoriented in a sense because I had already learned a lot about how college worked and learned about how it didn't work. And so, but when I got there, I had to learn a whole new way of doing things and, and a whole new process, a whole new, whole new set, of, set of life skills that were going to benefit me. And so I was oriented, but then I had to be reoriented. What we see happening in, in the book of Acts, in the second chapter here, represents a sort of reorienting. And honestly, we see this happen every single time somebody gets saved. We see a reorienting of their life. They had a particular pattern, a particular way of thinking, a particular way of doing life. But when someone comes to faith in Christ, that particular pattern is revealed for the flaws that it represents. And then we get a new way of doing life in the Lord Jesus Christ, a much greater way of doing life. In Acts chapter 2, we see a radical transformation take place. A whole new community is born with a whole new set of standards. There's a great reorienting that takes place as this loose-knit community of Jews becomes a radically transformed body known as the church, the body of Christ. And that should be our common experience today. Which raises an important question. What does the reorienting of the Acts chapter 2 church have to teach us today? Last week we got to the end of Peter's sermon with a question. What shall we do? He preaches and the crowd's only reaction when, when, when they hear is, what do we do with this? How do we react to this information? What do we, how do we respond? You know, really there was only two options to Peter's message. Repent and be baptized, or the alternative, don't do anything. You know, that's the, that's the opportunity everybody has when they hear the gospel message. They have two choices. Repent, follow Christ, or don't do anything. It's really the only two choices that are there. Undoubtedly, there were plenty in the crowd who heard the message and who did nothing. We hear the number that 3,000 people were saved. That was a stunning movement of God. If, if we were to end the service today and five people in this body today were to come forward and profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be a day that you would go home and you would talk about for years to come. The day that I was at church and five people, just five people, gave their life to Christ. It would be earth-shattering for you to experience. But there were 3,000 people that day who gave their lives to Christ in that moment. They heard Peter's sermon, they heard his call to response, and they said, we're in. 
We repent. Let us be baptized. In that moment, it was this great, remarkable movement of God. And what I find happening in the church today is we kind of gloss over it. You know, we just kind of gloss over it. And 3,000 people were saved that day. Oh, okay, moving on. 3,000 people were saved that day. That's a stunning number. That is a remarkable thought. Keep in mind that in today's day and time, there are 7 billion people on the planet, give or take. I'm not sure who's counting that. I ran out of fingers. But in a, in a world with billions and billions of people, Even in our own country with hundreds of millions of people, there are relatively few churches that have a a, a crowd larger than 3,000. A megachurch is defined as a crowd larger than 2,000. So you go, if you go to a church with a Sunday morning attendance bigger than 2,000, you go to a megachurch. And so now, here we are, there are 3,000 new Christians this day. And what happens, every pool and fountain in Jerusalem got turned into a baptistry. I can't imagine what happened when, when that crowd responded. Like, we would have a, we'd, have a, we'd have a planning meeting about how to take care of five new Christians. Right? Well, let's get them all baptized. Okay, we've got to do men on this day and women on this. I mean, there'd be a meeting that took place. You know they had a committee meeting right after this happened. What are we going to do with this? There's no way they were prepared for this. I'll never forget the, the very first Sunday I preached at the first church I served after graduating from seminary. Very first Sunday, you know, you, you've never experienced that before, but nerves are high. You don't know what's going to happen. You're afraid of everything going wrong. And so this was the very first Sunday that I was preaching at this church. And when I finished preaching, I moved into an invitation. Had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't have given an invitation because what happened during that invitation scared the daylights out of me. Somebody responded. That's not supposed to happen. This is the first day. Y'all aren't supposed to respond just yet. You got to give me some time. A couple walks down the aisle when I finish preaching during the invitation and they ask to join the church. I didn't know how you joined the church. I hadn't read that part yet. I didn't even know most of the people who were in the room yet. And so I didn't know did they have to meet with the pastor because I'm he and I hadn't met with them yet. So I didn't know what the rule was. And so I've got this couple that wants to join the church and I don't know what to do with them. I look over my shoulder at the worship leader and kind of give him an eye like, I don't know what to do. You know what he did? He just kept singing. <laughs> we, I let them join. I didn't know anything better. So they joined church that day. I should, if I'd known then, I'd have said, let's talk. But I, they joined the church. I can almost imagine Peter as he preaches and 3,000 people respond. I can almost see him glancing over his shoulder at John and mouth like, what do we do? And John respond and say, this is all your fault. <laughs> Thankfully, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, this little infant church wasn't clueless. They, they, didn't, they, they had a sense of what needed to happen. And so I want to consider how this infant church functioned. Because what we actually find is that in the infancy of the church, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom for how the church should continue to function today. 
And one of the great things about the church in Jerusalem that day is when they were trying to figure out what to do, nobody looked at him and said, we've never done it this way before. Uh, there were no committees to honor. There were no constitutions to read. There was nothing like that. And so all they had was the leadership of the Holy Spirit and principles to put in place that were genuine and necessary. See, when you're in a church that's been around a long time, there's a curse of, we've always done it this way. But when your church is literally birthed out of the radical conversion of thousands of souls and the fiery descent of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to worry much about how you did it 10 years ago. So if you've got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 2, let's look at Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 37. I would invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 37. In response to Peter's sermon. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation." And so those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. God, I thank you for this infant church that has so much to teach a church that's been institutionalized for so long now. So God, I pray that you might help us to clear the clutter, to focus on what matters most, and indeed, Lord, that you would do this again, that you might add to our number day by day those who are being saved. God, again, we are grateful for these words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You could be seated. As we consider these words today, I want us to consider how the Holy Spirit reoriented these believers into the kingdom of God. And what we're going to find is that there are four primary hallmarks of this brand new church that would be good for us to understand as well. So what are these hallmarks of this kingdom-centered, spirit-filled church? The first hallmark that we see that exists in this church is that there was great devotion to the apostles' teaching. There was great devotion to the word as it was taught. In order to become a Christian, there's not a lot of facts that you need to know, right? I mean, you don't have to be a Bible trivia expert in order to be saved. And the fact of the matter is, is most people give their life to Christ, they're not Bible trivia experts. In fact, people who give their life to Christ know very little biblical information. What do you need to know to become a Christian? That you're a sinner? That there's no hope for you apart from Christ. You need to know that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God who died your death on the cross. He rose again. He's coming back soon. That's what you got to know, right? 
And, and somebody who knows that information, if they come and they say, Pastor, I'm a sinner and I know who Jesus is, I know what he did for me and I believe he's coming again, all right, let's do it. Let's get the water in the tub, right? I mean, that's it. But there's a process then that, that unfolds. There's, there's information that needs to be conveyed. That new convert, we're not going to ask them to recite the Ten Commandments just yet, right? It's time to learn. They need to get in the Word and understand what it says. They understand the basic gospel, but they don't necessarily understand, you know, what happened on day four of creation. Hadn't got there yet, okay? But once you're a Christian, there's quite a bit of information that needs to be conveyed. We call that the process of discipleship, learning what the Bible says and learning how to apply it to life's, life situations. That's the process of discipleship. These 3,000 Jews that were saved this day, they had a lot of facts about the Old Testament. Many of them had many large portions of it memorized. But I'd be willing to bet that those two disciples that walked with Jesus onto the road to Emmaus, I bet they were the MVPs of the day. Because if you remember what happened on the road to Emmaus, these two disciples, Jesus comes alongside of them and he begins to invest in them and explain to them everything about himself from Genesis to Malachi and everything in between. And so these two guys on the road to Emmaus got in-depth teaching from Jesus about how to, how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And so if you're looking to preach Christian sermons before there's a New Testament, that lesson from Jesus is a pretty valuable one, right? And so those two guys likely became very important there in the church. And so I bet the apostles spent a lot of time talking to those guys and then talking to these new converts about all the things that Jesus taught them. I imagine they went back and went to the Old Testament and talked about how Jesus was there in the Old Testament. I bet they began to tell those new converts about all the things that Jesus began to teach them. There was a great devotion to teaching. Let me say this. If a church today does not have a primary focus on preaching and teaching scriptures, then that church is flawed from its very foundation. If a church today does not have primary focus on the preaching and teaching of scriptures, then that church is flawed from its very foundation. There's a big movement today about experience. It's our experience that we want to know and that we want to, we want to understand. I've even heard the term used by church growth experts about the Sunday morning experience. The Sunday morning experience. Well, what is the Sunday morning experience? Well, we want to make sure that everybody has a good Sunday morning experience. We don't want you to get out of your car and say, that was a terrible experience. That was awful. We want you to be greeted with smiles, and we want you to, to, to have a room that's, that's properly air-conditioned. We want all those things to be the case because I don't want to preach in a hot sanctuary. So there's a bit of selfishness there. As much as, as, much as we want you to enjoy yourself, I really want to enjoy myself. But, but we talk about this Sunday morning experience where, where everything from the time you get out of the car, from the time you leave, that we work to hard to make sure that, that you encounter no struggles, no problems, no issues at all from, from start to finish. So much of this comes from the consumerism of our day. I, I remember when we lived in Birmingham, there was a dentist who... Uh, who had a kitchen there in his dental office. And when you went in for dental work, you did not smell a dentist's office. In the kitchen, do you know what he had his office staff do all day long, every single day? 
bake cookies. And so when you walked into this dentist, instead of smelling fluoride and Colgate and, and latex and all the smells that go with the healthcare industry, instead you walked in and you smelled fresh baked chocolate chip cookies. The only thing better would be like a Krispy Kreme factory there in the dentist's office, right? I mean, you walk in and you don't, the smell of the dentist is not there. All you smell are, are chocolate chip cookies. And, and I mean, I'm sure he wouldn't give you one before you go get your teeth cleaned, but you get the point. Did you know there is an entire industry about scent marketing? And that scent marketing is, uh, it, it's companies that have equipment that releases odor into the atmosphere to generate the type of response that you want from the industry in which you are, uh, in which you're participating. Guess what? Churches have bought into this too. Churches have bought into this too. As a matter of fact, the company that we contracted with to install these video projectors has an entire division that does scent marketing. And they have equipment that releases pleasant smells, pleasant fragrances into the air. Now, I'm not suggesting that your church needs to smell like a porta potty for any, any, anything. But if we're spending Jesus' money on making the place smell like an orange grove, that really questions our priorities. Scent marketing. I can assure you that that's not going in the budget anytime soon for scent marketing. I'm not suggesting for a second that we shouldn't be hospitable. I'm not suggesting for a second that we shouldn't roll out the red carpet for guests. I'm not suggesting for a second that we should not have smiles on our faces and be the friendliest bunch of people that you can find. I'm not suggesting that for a second, but that is because of our character as Christians, not because we're about some marketing scheme to try to hoodwink people into being here. There was a large church in our last community that uh, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars installing an indoor children's playground, like think fast food restaurant, playland, inside the church, multi-story. We called the thing Six Flags Over Jesus. Again, I'm not suggesting that we don't provide excellent care for our children and that we don't provide a, a wonderful place where kids learn to love and serve and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But if all we're doing is catering to experience and we're missing the word of God as a result, we've really missed the mark completely. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. As Jesus followers, we should not only prioritize being part of churches where the teaching and preaching of the Bible is primary, we also need to make sure that our hearts are inclined in such a way that we crave it. So there's a part on me to make sure that I teach the Bible and that I'm committed to the Bible and I'm faithful to the Bible. That's, that's on me. I, I'm going to make sure that I do that. But there's a part on all of us as well to make sure that we crave the Bible. As Peter says here, that we would crave that pure spiritual milk. Listen, if you're not hungry for the Word and you're not hungry from learning from the Word, ultimately that reflects a spiritual sickness in your heart that needs to be addressed. We also need to make sure that we are mindful in our devotion to teaching that we beware of itchy ears. It's a warning that the Bible gives us that in the last days we'll have itchy ears. What does that mean? That means we'll be looking for, for things that, um, 
that we really like to hear, things that, that make us feel good. We live in a world today where every preacher is a radio preacher. You can, uh, within two hours after this service is finished, you can put on your smartphone an app and you can hear this sermon replayed in your car and listen to it just like you would a radio preacher. That's what we've got to, that's what we're able to do now, but that's true for everybody. And here's the thing, you don't have to have credentials to start that. Nobody asked for my ordination certificate. Nobody asked for my, my transcript from seminary. Nobody asked for anything. I didn't go through a theological review before that content was made available on the internet. It is available to anybody and everybody regardless of how quality it is or not. All it takes to be a radio preacher today is an internet connection and a smartphone. And you've got access to whoever's willing to download it. The opportunity for us today to spread the gospel is as great as it's ever been. But the other side of that is that the opportunity to spread false gospels is just as great. It is just as great. You can go on the top 20 podcasts today and you can find phenomenal preachers, but you can also find stinkers that are doing nothing but sharing false gospels. The second thing we see in this early church, this infant church, is a devotion to fellowship. It's interesting that this is the first time this word appears in our New Testament. And so the kind of fellowship that we're talking about here didn't exist prior to the Holy Spirit's arrival. Uh, it didn't, uh, it didn't be, it was, wasn't there before Pentecost. But I'm afraid that in the same way that it didn't exist prior to Pentecost, that we've allowed a very subtle substitute to sneak into our churches today. We think of fellowship today in a Baptist church. Our minds are drawn towards fried chicken and sweet tea with friends. As long as we got fried chicken and sweet tea and friends, we got fellowship. And one's just a good meal, but you add friends and you've got fellowship. In most churches, the second largest room in the church is the fried chicken and sweet tea hall, also known as the fellowship hall. For the more theologically advanced in our midst, they, admit, they, they stretch the idea of fellowship beyond the idea of sweet tea and fried chicken to a feeling of oneness and unity. Again, it's not that sharing a meal together is bad. It's not that having a sense of unity and oneness is wrong. The problem is that it doesn't really get close to the definition of true biblical fellowship. Fellowship conveys a sense of, of sharing life together. When you look at that, that biblical word for fellowship, the, the root word for fellowship is, is common. Common. Not like it's as, uh, you know, as common as, as rocks in the parking lot. That's not what it means. It means that we have, we have things in common, that we are, we, our lives are together in common. Again, it doesn't mean that we all like the same football team or the same flavor of ice cream. That's not what this is talking about. But there was a sense in this infant church that there was a desire to take care of one another as people were selling their, their, their goods to give to others who had needs. There was a sense of, if you got a need, I'll help you meet it. And if I've got a need, I know there's people to help me meet it. And so there was a sense of, of commonality that we're, we're all in this together. That we're, we're, we're working towards the same goal. We're moving together in the same direction. We are, we are united with one another beyond just sitting in a room together. If you wanted to define it simply, I think fellowship in a biblical sense is, is the visible manifestation of Jesus' command to his disciples in John 13. In John 13, 34, Jesus said this to his disciples. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. 
by this, by what? By your love for each other, by how you relate, how you respond, how you care for, how you do life together, how all those things work together. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The quickest way to make sure that the world knows that we're not disciples is to let a church be full of backbiting and gossip and division and strife. That's the quickest way for the world outside to say, you know what? Those people really aren't disciples of Jesus. But if you really want the world to know that you're disciples, then you experience this koine fellowship, this common fellowship, this, this, this sharing of life together. And if you have fried chicken and sweet tea every once in a while together, that's okay too. The third characteristic of this infant church, I think we can summarize as, as worship. Worship. Now again, we, we're not getting into the songs they sang or, or, or how they did worship. That's not what we're talking about here. But instead, Luke talks about two things, breaking of bread and prayer. Breaking of bread, that, that could be part of that fried chicken experience, but that's really not what Luke is talking about here. Breaking of bread in this context likely refers to the frequent observation of the Lord's Supper. And it's likely they did just that that they did at the Last Supper. When they broke bread together, they did what Jesus did with them. They shared a meal together, and then as they finished their meal, they broke bread together. And the thing is, they didn't pass little trays with plastic rations. Okay? They didn't do that. Uh, we did Lord's Supper. Last time we were able to do Lord's Supper, we tried it at Christmas time with those little peel top things. And I told our Wednesday night crowd that that was the most miserable experience I've ever had leading the Lord's Supper. Because everybody's, I mean, there was no reverence to the thing whatsoever. We could have just thrown them out instead of passing, passing trays. It's so irreverent. It had no significance. It took a total of 45 seconds. And it just was lost in the moment. I'm looking forward to our church picnic in a couple of weeks because we're going to have a great time at our church picnic. We're going to celebrate baptism there at the lake. And we're going to come together at the end of that event. And we're going to share Lord's Supper, but we're going to do it in a way that we don't get to do in here. We're going to share a common meal. And then sitting around the table together, we're truly going to break bread and share the Lord's Supper together as a church family around tables. I'm really looking forward to that. Because that's a worshipful thing. It's a worshipful experience to be able to use that event to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice, to reflect, reflect on what he has done for us. I'm so excited about that. And don't worry, we're not going to pass a singular cup for everyone to share. Some of y'all were getting nervous. We also know that prayer was an important part of their worship. They met together in the temple for prayer. They prayed likely in ways that were very familiar to their Jewish faith. They likely used psalms and those Jewish prayers in that capacity. But I suspect that as they grew and as they learned and as they reflected, they began to develop a Christian way of praying, likely informed by the Lord's Prayer, because that's something the disciples were taught. The Lord teaches to pray. He taught them the Lord's Prayer. The thing to remember is that for them, prayer wasn't a PS or a call to order for a committee meeting. Prayer was a meaningful expression to the Lord, seeking his heart, seeking his desire, seeking that he would change their heart, seeking that he would soften their neighbors, seeking God's will and God's, God's hand in their life and in their church. We desperately need people to pray today. We're working to create a room in our church where a couple of folks can meet for prayer during our morning worship services. There's a, you can sign up and be part of that opportunity. There's a sign-up sheet out there at the secretary's desk. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that God wants to reach our community for Christ. 
Y'all believe that? I mean, how do we know? Because he said so, right? I mean, if I know the heart of God according to the scriptures, God doesn't want anybody in Chattanooga Valley to perish, right? According to the scriptures, God doesn't want anybody in Rossville to perish. God doesn't want anybody in High Point to perish. God doesn't want anybody in Chickamauga or Lookout Mountain to perish. God doesn't want anybody in Fort Oglethorpe to perish. God wants every single one of those people to repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Do we believe that? How are they going to find out if we don't tell them? Who, who's going to share that if the people of God are not sharing? And so I'm asking God to move in our midst, and I'm hoping you're asking God to do the very same thing because I want to line up with God's heart. And God's heart is for the nations, but God's heart's for our neighbors. This week I learned about a new tool to help us pray better. It's called blesseveryhome.com. There's a map that I've got on the screen there. It doesn't show up as well. It's too, it's too white. But uh, just to, to kind of comment on what that is, that's my neighborhood, the red circles where I live. And what happens when you go to blesseveryhome.com, you sign up, and it creates a map of the 30 or 40 closest homes to you. And every one of those homes you can click on and find out the names of the people who live there. And so it used to be in order to know your neighbors, you had to go knock on the door and talk to them. And so we don't like talking to people anymore. We don't, you know, we moved to the back porch instead of the front porch. But now you actually know their names. And so when you meet your neighbor from down the street and he says, oh, I'm so-and-so, you can immediately put it in the back of your brain. Well, I know where he lives. I know what his name is. And every day I get a prompt that reminds me I need to be praying for these folks. And every day I've got five new names of people in my neighborhood that, that I'm, I'm praying for. And I'm asking God to give me an opportunity, not just to pray for them passively, but to look to bless them actively. So that when I see them, I, I can call them by name, and I can find out what's going on in their life, and I can offer to pray for them and hopefully lead that into spiritual conversations and actually lead, share the gospel with them. BlessEveryHome.com, I'd encourage you to go sign up and start to meet your neighbors. It's a great tool. Guess what happens as you pray for your neighbors? You begin to care for them, even if you don't know them yet. Prayer's a great tool. If you begin to pray for your enemies, the same thing starts to happen. Your heart starts to soften towards those people. If you start praying for people that you're mad at, you know, guess what happens? You find you're not quite as mad at them because you're praying for them. You're praying for them. This church was devoted to teaching, to fellowship, to worship. Listen, if you do those things, something is bound to begin to happen. If you're focused on these things, something's bound to begin to happen because you cannot keep it in. And that's the fourth function of this infant church. We see that in the, the task of evangelism. You see, what happens here is that the Holy Spirit is reorienting our relationships. Our relationship with the Word is transformed through teaching and preaching. Our relationship to one another is transferred, and that, and that changes and results in fellowship. Our relationship with the Lord is transformed because of worship. As a consequence of all of this, then our relationship with the world is transformed, and that leads to evangelism. The statistics today are pretty grim. It's hard to do evangelism here. Because one of the things we find in our community here in the, in the I won't say we're the buckle of the Bible belt, but we're at least one of the little, little holes in the belt, Right? The buckle of the Bible belt, everybody's affiliated, right? Everybody you talk to is affiliated. Everybody you talk to is, is affiliated with the church or a denomination. But I want to tell you something today. Being affiliated 
is not the same thing as being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being affiliated is not the same as being a disciple. We live in the shadow of what is called the most churched city in America. Chattanooga, Tennessee has more churches per capita than any other city in the country. And you say, man, this is like a spiritual Mecca. Except it's not. Because having a lot of church buildings does not make one necessarily the most saved city in America. A prevalence of churches does not mean much when many of those churches are just a funeral or two away from closing forever. We know lostness is pervasive in our community. You experience it every single day in your workplace. You experience every single day in your neighborhoods the lostness of our community. Indeed, I don't think it's too bold to say that we experience lostness every single weekend in our church sanctuaries. Lostness is real. And it's dark, and it's our task to roll it back. As a church, we want to provide resources to help us become better at this. We're working out some final details with our convention to provide some really high-quality training here at Chat Valley to enhance our evangelism efforts. Met with a guy this week. We're really looking forward to starting some, some really good training in evangelism about how we can share our faith with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our classmates in a more effective way. All this should result... And what we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47, a glad church. Listen to those verses. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. I won't lie, I read that, and that almost sounds like a dream. Right? Because our experience, and I think I can say this universally, our experience of the church does not match this reflection of the church. We can all think back to times and places where we've been hurt, where things didn't go our way, Some of us can even think back to times and places where we were the ones who did the hurting. And so we read this and we think, man, this is a a dream. This church, right? It's like saying if you ever find the perfect church, don't go because you'll ruin it, right? But if we believe, and we have to believe this, if we believe that the Holy Spirit that empowered the church in Acts chapter 2 empowers us today, It hadn't changed, right? It's the same. Then the only difference between this glad body in Acts chapter 2 and us, it's us. Sadly, I'm afraid that our church today is not always driven by the Holy Spirit. As I said earlier, so many times our churches are driven by this consumer mindset, which is so crazy. It's an American phenomenon, this consumer mindset. Far too much of our time in church today is is spent trying to keep customers satisfied. We end our day and we think, well, did the people enjoy it? When the question we should be asking is, Lord, what'd you think? Lord, what'd you think? We leave our services thinking, man, I didn't like the music. Or he preached too long or he preached too short. Music was too fast. That 
victory in Jesus is a little too much rock and roll. God help us, we're asking the wrong question. Because the question should be, Lord, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Our little community, Chattanooga Valley, Flintstone, if I can just be real transparent. This, this, whole, this unrest has characterized our little communities like this for decades. I don't like this, so I'm going to go to this church, or I don't like that, so I'm going to go to that church. And it's this constant revolving door. And we think, man, why does the kingdom not do something awesome in our midst? Could it be that we're too worried about our kingdoms and not God's kingdom? I'm not suggesting that there aren't times that it's appropriate to go to one church, leave another. But I am saying that we've allowed a pattern to develop in our bodies today that simply does not reflect the motives of this first church. And I don't know about you, It would appear to me that what's taking place in this church in Acts chapter 2 is far more successful than the patterns that we've allowed to develop in our churches today. In this post-COVID world, I guess it's what it is, I don't know. Are we post-COVID now? I don't know. I'm simply calling on us today for a simple act of renewal in our hearts. And that simple act of renewal ought to have consequences from top to bottom. And that simple request today is simply that we would begin to allow our pattern of thought, our pattern of priority, our pattern of what matters, to simply reflect the pattern reflected in this Acts chapter 2 church. Simple focuses. The Word of God properly taught and preached the fellowship of the saints, sharing life together beyond fried chicken and sweet tea, the worship of God in the body of Christ, sharing the Lord's Supper, praying together, and a heart for the lost. Sometimes it's that last one that is the most difficult. Because you know what happened with us 3,000 people that day? I know pastors who've experienced people, multiple people getting saved at once, and they're excited, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking, my, my spiritual church nursery just got filled. Right, we had a little baby boom, right? COVID baby boom, and so the, the nursery back there slapped full of babies and toddlers, right? That's exciting. That's, we enjoy that, uh, except for the people who were stuck back there, and they wish more of y'all would enjoy it with them. Taking care of babies and toddlers and all that back there, that's, man, it, it lasts for a couple hours on Sunday morning. But when you got, you got five kids that are all two years old, all climbing up your back at the same time, you're counting your blessings just like you're counting your minutes. Can he please hurry up? You get a bunch of people saved at one time, it's just like having that church nursery back there full. But it's a different set of problems. Man, toddlers are needy you got to watch out for them because they'll get hurt. you know. You got you to guard them. Baby believers are just the same, except it's a whole different set of issues. They're, 
vulnerable to false teaching. They're vulnerable to, to problems in the church. They're vulnerable to those sort of things. You've got to guard them and protect them and raise them so they know how to respond. Man, 3,000 babies just born. Peter John thinking, we're not too old ourselves. Sometimes seeing lost people saved brings with it a share of heartaches and headaches. But by God's grace, it's worth every single one. You see, if this simple formula expressed to us in the Bible, devotion to teaching, commitment to fellowship, the worship of God, a heart for the lost, if we will allow that to govern our church, to govern our expectations, to govern our service, to govern how we function, is it too bold to expect God would move in our midst? Is it too bold to say that God would indeed see men and women being added to their number daily? Is that too bold a request? I don't believe it is. Because I believe it's a request nearest and dearest to the heart of God. Favor with the community. People being added. That's an outcome that we should all be willing to celebrate. Would you pray with me, please? God, I'm grateful for the simple formulas that you have given us in Scripture. Simple instructions, really. That we would be committed firmly to your word. Lord, that I as, I as a preacher would be steadfast and movable on the word of God. That our Sunday school teachers would, would understand how important their task is. That all those who would stand in front of our children and our students would understand how important the word of God properly taught is to our identity as your church. That we would see fellowship as, a, as an immovable part of who we are and, and not just breaking, not just sitting down and eating together, but sharing life together. That in this post-COVID world that we would see one another in each other's homes and that we would celebrate that, that there'd be gladness, that our neighbors would wonder, what, what do they got people over there all the time for? Because we love Jesus, why don't you come and join us? That worship would be a, 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 such an important part of who we are. And, and not just the songs we sing, but baptism, Lord's Supper, those things expressed as, as, as physical reminders of spiritual truth. And that prayer would become a, more than just a P.S. at the end of our services. And as a working of all that out, that the lost in our midst would truly want to be saved. And so, God, much of this is on us and making sure that our hearts are right with you. But, Lord, we're honestly coming before you today and we're asking you to move today, that you would move in our midst, that you would move in our communities, that it wouldn't just be Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church where we see you move, but in all of our churches and our communities that we would see you move 
<laughs> in exciting ways that we would have stories to tell our grandchildren of the movement that you made in our lives. And so God, I ask that today, that if there's any here in this room, they may not know the whole Bible, but they know enough today that they know they're not right with Christ and that they need to get saved, that today they would say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that today, Lord, we could begin to see that prayer answered. God, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for these people. And we ask, as we've asked so many times in these last few weeks, God, would you do that again? Would you move again? Would you stir again? Would there be stories to tell of how you invaded our hearts and changed our lives? pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.